You know, you can judge me all you want. I certainly will. I have never seen The Exorcist. I haven't either. Except for, you know, pieces and parts, I'm, but I'm, not I'm familiar entirely. with the story. I know the high beats. I know the general flow of the movie. But what I didn't realize until not too, too long ago was that uh, that is based on a true story. Mm-hmm. An alleged true story. Not a little girl. And a big chunk of it happened here in Missouri, in St. Louis. Yeah, not so far from us. Yeah, and uh, I mean, who would have thought? I mean, regarded as one of the, the scariest horror movies of all time, who would have believed that this is inspired by a true story? Now, some of it is exaggerated for film, but the film actually leaves some of the story out, too. So we're going to discuss the exorcism of Roland Doe. The real story. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. The Exorcist is a classic 1973 horror film directed by William Freakin. The film, uh, which tells the story of a young girl who is possessed by a demonic force. Maybe if I'm wrong, did we not discuss The Exorcist on our Cursed Movies yes, episode? Yes, it, I believe it was included. All sorts of things that happened while that movie was being made. Yep, you are correct. It is one of the highest grossing horror films of all time, and uh, critics praise it as truly a terrifying film experience. But many people, of course, don't realize that popular horror film was actually inspired, as Bill said, on a true story. Blatty's book, The Exorcist, sold more than 13 million copies in the U.S. alone. 13 million copies. The film earned him an Academy Award and a Golden Globe in 1974. It was the first horror movie to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. But is it real? Did it really happen? Some people still deny that it did. So for a brief overview here, sometime in the late 1940s, a Roman Catholic priest performed a series of exorcisms on an anonymous boy. Um, that he is documented as either Roland Doe or Robbie Mannheim, which seems a weirdly specific name. Uh, for the purposes of our podcast tonight, we're going to go with the name Roland Doe, because like John Doe. Yeah, kind of an alias. But he was a 14-year-old boy who was the allegedly the victim of demonic possession. And events were recorded by the attending priest, Raymond J. Bishop. Somewhere around mid-1949, several newspapers printed anonymous reports of an alleged possession and exorcism. Uh, the source was thought to be the family's former pastor, Luther Miles Schulz. And uh, one account claimed that a total of 48 people had witnessed these exorcisms. Now, according to author Thomas B. Allen, who seems to be the authority on this, the Jesuit priest Father Walter H. Halloran was one of the last surviving witnesses of the exorcisms, and he was also a participant. And Allen wrote that a diary was kept by uh, attending priest Father Raymond J. Bishop, who recorded the, the details of the exorcism. And I think that was kind of the prerequisite from the Catholic Church to perform an exorcism. Of course, they have to get permission. Yeah, you have to have and permission. that was one of the prereqs that was given was we want a daily yeah. diary recording of the events. Now, as I begin to recount the story and I go through the history of it, Depending on your sources, it's a little hard to figure out when certain religious figures got involved, Holleran, Bishop, and them. So 
if, if I get their involvements wrong, I do apologize. I, I had multiple sources here, and, and while one group would say, or, or one source would say, like, oh, this guy wasn't involved until St. Louis, and another source may say, oh, no, he was involved before they got to St. Louis. Yeah. So I tried to put together the story as best I could and, and follow the, the clearest timeline. So something, if there's a little bit of confusion, understand that multiple sources kind of had conflicting information. So uh, I mean, the story was, what, like 70 years ago? Yeah. So, so start at the beginning. Roland's born in 1935 into a German Lutheran family. In the 1940s, they lived in Cottage City, Maryland, which I guess is very, very close to D.C. Now, Roland was an only child, and he depended upon the adults in his home for playmates, primarily as Aunt Harriet. Now, Aunt Harriet, of course, as any good story like this goes, <laughs> she was a spiritualist. Yes. And when Roland showed interest, she introduced him to the Ouija board, which and, I believe is a central focus of the movie. Yes, and they That's, played with that, they yes. said, on a daily basis. Now, again, you got to understand, at that time frame, that was the big spiritualist movement. So well, we're not talking some crazy single aunt yeah. that's out here doing this well, by herself. We did a whole episode on Ouija boards, yeah. and we talked about the history at the time. It was seen as a party family game. Yes. Yeah. So, Invite your kids. What so, could possibly go wrong? After Aunt Harriet's death, the family began to experience unusual phenomenon in the home. Uh, strange noises, which would include scratching sounds coming from the walls and floors of Roland's room, uh, water dripping inexplicably from pipes in the walls, furniture moving of its own accord, ordinary objects flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. I believe there was a picture of Jesus on the wall, which would vibrate if he Like somebody was close. punching it from the backside. Now, first, the family tried to reach out to the spirits in the home. They, they believed there were spirits in the home that were causing this problem. And I think they did what most people would do in a similar situation if you believed you had spirits. And they, they reached out and they asked to be left alone. Hey, you know, we've had enough of this. This is making yep. us uncomfortable. We don't feel this safe. This is our space. Back off. This only seemed to make things worse. They did. I think you touched on it. They did believe that after the aunt died that it could just be her trying to communicate. Because yeah. I guess she kind of had that prankster... <laughs> style and in one of the incidences you know they called out was it gertie i can't remember aunt harriet. aunt harriet thank you aunt harriet are you with us here tonight and a chair literally got knocked over yeah you know in the room and they're like oh yes it is her but no i don't think so but but after appealing to the spirits to stop things seem to become worse roland now claimed to be able to hear someone walking in his room while he was trying to sleep uh, they would find scratch marks on his mattress in the morning and eventually scratches would begin to appear on the boy's body so with all this going on, the family turns to their Lutheran pastor, Luther Miles Schulz, and, and they need his help. You know, there's obviously something going on. And, and something it's outside of our control, that. yeah. So Schulz, uh, he'd been long interested in parapsychology. He'd been watching these kinds of things. He'd been fascinated with it. It was a field that interested him. And, of course, he takes the opportunity to come in. So he arranges for the boy to, to spend the night with him. You know, come to my house. We'll get you out of this environment. I guess the assumption was if it was the house itself that was haunted, being at Luther, or being at Luther's house would, would separate that separate him from those spirits. So he brought the boy in to observe him, and Schulz claimed to witness household objects and furniture moving uh, seemingly by themselves, including chairs that would move with Roland in them, and, and one that would actually threw Roland out as it was moving. <laughs> uh, said his bed was also would also shake uh, any time he was in it. I believe when he visited their home, he said he saw where the floors had been scored by the, the furniture had been heavy moved furniture. so much. Yeah. Yes. So he advised that their parents go and seek out a Catholic priest. Because obviously Lutheran does not have the best background for exorcisms or well, possessions yeah, or any of that. Depending on your, your religious beliefs, you know, some places don't even believe in exorcism. So, right. Or some faiths, I should say. I won't say faith, places. So at this point in time, the boy began to go through what they called a series of exorcisms. 
Um, now here in, in Cottage City, they were conducted by Roman Catholic priest Edward Hughes at the Georgetown University Hospital, which was a Jesuit institution. Uh, during the, these exorcisms, at some point, the boy managed to slip one of his hands free of the restraints. And he was, he was strapped to the bed. Uh, obviously, during the, the ritual, there's a lot of thrashing and moving and, and whatnot, as, as seen in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so, for the safety of everyone involved, they secured him to the bed. They strapped him down, strapped his hands and legs. Protect well, them as well as himself. He managed to get his hand free. He broke a bed spring from underneath the mattress, which I think requires a little That's bit of strength. That's a lot of strength, I think. And uh, used it as an improvised weapon to slash the priest's arm during the process. And so, I think he broke another one's nose, maybe? That's later. That's later, okay. So at this point, they stopped the rituals. Now, a few days later, red scratches would have begun to appear on the boy's body, and one of these scratches formed the word Lewis. Lewis. Now, the family had family in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they made this leap in logic, but they thought. Yeah, I would have thought a person or maybe a name. Maybe this or... means St. Louis. So they ask, is that what that means? And they, they kind of get confirmation in the scratch, scratches, right? So then they're like, okay, so we have to go to St. Louis. When do we need to leave? Can you imagine this? I mean, seriously, you're yeah. holding your boy down. This Lewis gets carved across his chest. Oh, since that works so good, let me ask more questions. And if you yeah. could just carve into my, my son's body and reply. So, so yeah, yeah. They ask, <laughs> when should we leave? And on the boy's hip. Scratches manifest the word Saturday. Pretty pretty specific. Well, it's a big word, too, to be scratched yeah, out on yeah. the kid's leg. Not now, not, <laughs> you know. So then they say, how long should we stay in St. Louis? <laughs> Again. And scratched honey, out. Honey, I know this is going to hurt, yeah. but we're getting an answer, it so just told me. <laughs> so uh, scratches say three and a half weeks on the boy's body. Getting pretty specific. So whatever force was afflicting Roland seemed to be in favor of this move to St. Louis. And again, it seems torturous. If he's already going through this, you're asking questions, using him as like a human Ouija board. Exactly. uh, You have to question the parenting a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry. So now, like I said, they they had family in St. Louis. They knew they could go there and stay with some folks. So they traveled to St. Louis uh, sometime early March 1949. Now, remember, when I give dates or I give specifics, they kind of bleed A lot of this is, it it was sort of anonymous and, and no one really, I don't think, well, the church does not want these records out there, yeah. for one thing. So, you know, you've got people that were there or said they were there or witnessed things. It's real easy to and get off. Like I said about the, the, the involvement of the different priests. If I get something wrong, it's because there's conflicting information. So Roland has a cousin there, and his cousin contacts one of his professors at St. Louis University, which is Raymond J. Bishop. Uh, Bishop gets in contact with William S. Bodern, another associate of his, and they're both priests. They visit Roland and his relative's home. And while there, they claim to see additional scratches on the boy's body, flying objects, and the boy exhibits an aversion to anything sacred. So the crucifix, pictures of Jesus, any, anything. Holy water, yeah, yeah. yeah. At one point, Bodern attempts to protect Roland, in his own words, through a blessing and the placing of a crucifix under his pillow. Now they, they leave him to sleep and they, they go back out of the room and then they hear a commotion, some noise, and, and they go back and the furniture in the room has been flipped over the crucifix is sitting on the edge of the bed, vibrating, and the mattress is shaking uncontrollably. So it's another aspect from the movie. Now, the priest would also notice that there was a, a sort of predictable pattern to Ronald's behavior. He would be calm and normal during the day, but at night, after they, he would be put to bed, he would begin to exhibit this behavior, which would include screaming and wild outbursts. Uh, he would also enter into trance-like states and begin to make sounds in a guttural voice, uh, sometimes speaking in Latin. So, I mean... 
Your boys don't typically learn Latin these there, days. There was people already at this point, you know, saying that this was just a single boy. He was just getting attention. You know, he was yeah, just I, I read he playing was a bully. it out. He was a bully. He's doing it for attention. He's, uh, but still. I guess he started swearing and cussing at the, at the ministers and, and the priests. And, and they're like, you know, well, especially at that time frame in the late 40s, how else are you going to uh, swear at a priest and not be held accountable? And, you know, the devil made me do it. I understand that some other people said he could have been going through epileptic seizures, which could cause the shaking and convulsions. That still doesn't explain the furniture moving, shaking, pictures on the wall. Yeah. Well, they say they never checked the boy's nails to see if he self-inflicted the scratches. But again, I mean... People are sitting here talking about how they observe the scratches. Actually, here shortly, I'm going to talk about scratches that move. So, Yeah, that's kind of hard to fake. Yeah. So at one point during these weeks-long ordeal that they're, they're, they're trying to perform exorcisms, uh, Bo Dern saw an X appear on, in scratches on the boy's chest. He believed that that signified the number 10 in Roman numeral, mm-hmm. possibly indicating that the boy was possessed by 10 demons. Whoa. In another incident, a pitchfork-shaped pattern of red scratches moved from the boy's thigh down to his ankle. How do you do that? Yeah. Now, these types of things happen every night for more than a month. And um, at one point, and correct me if I'm wrong, you may have the dates there, they tried to baptize him. I, I didn't have a record of that. I had down here that they, they thought um, the family converted to Catholic, Catholicism and yeah, tried to... Yeah, they did have that they converted. They tried to have Roland baptized, but the young boy responded to their baptism attempts with unbridled rage. Uh, at one point, Roland was admitted to the hospital where a psychiatrist uh, attempted to treat him but was ultimately unsuccessful. So I guess when they approached him or tried to get him to uh, go into this, you know, holy water, he just, they said, had like the power of five grown men yeah. and was throwing priests down. Now, and, as, as a father yourself, have you ever had to contend with an angry child? Yes. Don't get me wrong. They can seem pretty strong. Strong three and a half men. Even my <laughs> even my daughter at like five or six years old, there were there was a there was a spat there where she didn't want to go to school, and to physically carry her out of the house would exhaust me. Yeah. So yeah. kicking, screaming, yeah. squirming. Yeah. No, yeah that, I get that. that one. I could almost. I, I get. Now the two priests never gave up. Uh, they continued night after night trying to save this boy. On the night of March 20th, according to witnesses, the exorcisms reached an unhealthy new level where Ronald urinated all over his bed and then began shouting and cursing at the priests. Um, at this point, the parents had had enough, and they took him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital, which is in southern St. Louis, uh, for what they called more serious treatment. Bodern was granted permission for, to perform another exorcism from the archbishop while the young boy was at the hospital. So before their ritual, another priest, Walter Halloran, was called into the psychiatric wing, and he was asked to assist Bodern. And there was also a William Van Rue, a third Jesuit priest, who was also there to help. Now, Halloran stated that during the scene, words such as evil and hell and various other marks appeared on the boy's body. Uh, and they claimed that during the litany of the saints portion of the ritual, the boy's mattress began to shake, and it was at this point that Roland broke Halloran's nose during, during the exorcism. That's the one I was thinking I don't thinking know if he of. got free or whatever. Well, finally, on April 18th, a miracle occurred in Roland's room. This was the Monday after Easter. Roland awoke with seizures, and he started to yell at the priests, saying Satan would always be with him. And the priests laid holy relics, crucifixes, medals, and rosaries on the boy. And at 10.45 that night, attending priests called on St. Michael to expel Satan from the boy's body. Seven minutes later, seven is a significant number. Yep. 
Roland came out of his trance and said simply he is gone, and then described having a vision of St. Michael vanquishing Satan on a great battlefield. Now, there is definitely betrayal that it is a single demon, where before we previously talked as many yeah. as ten demons. So Now, Halloran told a reporter afterwards that the anonymous subject of the exorcism went on to lead a rather ordinary life. Uh, afterwards, the family moved back to the East Coast, where some say that Roland found a wife, started a family, hmm? and named his first son Michael after the saint that he believed saved his soul. The room where the exorcism was performed in the Aglexian Bro- Brothers Hospital was boarded up and sealed. Sealed after that ordeal, never to be yeah. used again. And now the building's been torn down. Now, like we touched on earlier, some said that, that maybe Roland was a bully. Maybe he was doing it for attention. You know, this is an opportunity for a young man to lash out and conduct himself in a way that is socially unacceptable. No one's going to tolerate it. He's way out of line. Some people said it could be psychological. I think you said, you know, you touched on mental. Epilepsy. Yeah. and In his 1993 book, Possessed, the true story of an exorcism, Arthur Thomas B. Allen, who I said is kind of the, the unofficial expert on this, he offered that by consensus of today's experts, Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy. Nothing supernatural about that. Yep. So. That's pretty swept under the rug. I mean, that's that's yeah. a bold statement, I think. You know, you've got the original book that documents this, and, and you have the film that comes after, and then the I think they're sequels. And again, you know, to my shame as a horror fan, I've never seen the original Exorcist. I, uh, I have tried. I will say I, I tried, but it is just so, as we were talking, it's just so dated. Well, I was going to say, frankly, by today's standards, it's pretty cheesy. And so. then, to, you know, doing the research for this, and you're hearing... And it was in, you know, newspapers all around when the movie came out, but even interviews with people, they were passing out and throwing up and having to leave the movie because they were so disturbed. Again, it was a different time. Like we said, you know, even in our previous podcast about cursed movies, there were a lot of deaths associated with the movie, some of the actors, family members of the actors. I mean, there was such a aura around that film and that story. And then to find out, for me to find out that part of it was at least based in St. Louis, a big chunk of it, and that it was a true story, I, you know, of course, I was more curious and had to dig into that a little yeah, deeper. That makes it a lot more intriguing. Now, the real possessed, the gentleman, uh, you know, Rolando, was his alias. His real name was Ronald, very close to Roland. Ronald Edwin Hun- Hunkeller, I believe. Hunkeller. One of, yeah. Um, he died May 10th of 2020. It was one month before his 86th birthday. Yes, right at his 86th birthday. He suffered a stroke uh, at his home in Marriottsville, Maryland. Now, here's kind of the other side of the flip. In his adult life, uh, he was a NASA engineer yeah. who, uh, whose work contributed to the Apollo space missions in the 1960s and who patented technology that helped space shuttle panels withstand extreme heat. Yep. Uh, one of his uh, companions, and it said companion, so I'm not sure if that was a wife. Now, before we, this is all a legend. Yes. Now, this has never been confirmed 100% that this is, in fact, that Ronald here is Roland. Okay. That's, that's still alleged. 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 One of his companions, a 29-year-old woman who asked not to be named, told the New York Post that Hunking, how do you pronounce it again? Hunkler. Hunkler. Uh, the New York Post that Hunkler was always on edge about his NASA colleagues discovering that he was the inspiration for the exorcist. I believe her exact words were he lived with worry, 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 all, worry, all worry, the time. Worry. Yes. It was so bad that at Halloween, he, they would always leave their home and, and stay somewhere else. 
for that fear that people would find out who he was. Yeah. And I mean, if somebody was going to harass you, Halloween would be the day for that. So they were, he always lived in fear that people would figure out that he was that person. And he retired from NASA in 2001 after working at the agency for nearly 40 years. Now, you might ask, okay, we kind of shared with you this, the real story. We shared with you how well the Exorcist movie went on. One, one strange little detail about his passing is that just before his death, unexpectedly unannounced, a Catholic priest arrived at his home. Had not heard this. To perform last rites before he passed. So the you're family, saying nobody called him? No one called him. The family has no, had no idea. They, they didn't know he was going to arrive. They, didn't know, they don't really know who he was. Just, he introduced himself as a Catholic priest. I'm sure he introduced himself by name, but just showed up out of the blue one day right before Ronald passed away to give him to perform last rites before he passed. And it really gave Ron a sense of peace, I guess, at the end, and his family, who, uh, who said, well, I believe, I, th- I think you said partner. Is partner, the way it was. companion. Companion, but yeah, the, the companion stated that, that she, she knew he was at peace and that, that really helped Ron, and that got him, you know, into heaven, and, and, you know, he was finally at peace and he didn't have to worry about this anymore. Which that could be explained. What I'm envisioning is if... He was the real exorcist boy. It would stand to reason that the Catholic Church, you know, sure after they, they did it, they would him. keep tabs on him. Yeah. Why? And they'd be like, oh, our work's here is done. You just turn your back on the person for the rest of their lives. So that, that's an interesting twist. Now, we might say, how did this story leak out, for lack of a better term, to William Peter Blatty and, and all those that was involved with the writing of the book and obviously the, the hugely successful movie? And that goes back to uh, Blady's consulted bishop's journals. And he talked with the, uh, the priest Baldron in order to get the details of the exorcism for his fictional account of a similar story in his novel, The Exorcist. Now, Blady's novel was quickly picked up and adapted into film. Now, you might say, now, so how did these two meet? Well, they were in the same Jesuit uh, priesthood. And so they knew each other as friends. The Catholic Church, of course, is very strict, confidential, so no names were, were given, obviously. That's why it's still today we're seeing the alleged yeah. uh, death of Ronald Edward Hunkinkler. But enough of the story was being able to be passed down, and with what Blatty was wanting to do with just a, a spinoff, he just wanted details. So he went to the Jesuit priest and said, you know, look, I heard this story, but I want to make it believable. And, you know, obviously, I know you guys aren't supposed to talk a lot about this, and very few, even being involved in the Catholic Church, are exposed to this. It's, it's kind of the next level. But could you at least enlighten me on some of the things that would have taken place? And, and so that's where the whole believability, and I think that may have been a reason at the time when the movie took off so well, because at least from that aspect— it was believable of what the church, how the church might respond. Yeah. And, you know, it even hit a chord with a lot of the Catholics. As a matter of fact, they interviewed uh, several priests of the Catholic church during that time frame, and they said, this movie's been one of the greatest things for our church that there has been. People are coming to confessions. They're getting things off of their chest. You know, they're, they're coming forward. They're, they're wanting to join a church. They want to believe in something good again. So I think that's the realism in which the story was, was, was done in the novel as well as the movie was just so believable that it, it struck a chord in that society. 
Well, I know, I, I read a story not too long, or a book, and it was written by a guy who used to be a police officer in New York City, who now assists in, in exorcists. He, he may be, and, and I could be wrong, I think that though at one point they said he's the only non-Catholic priest who the Catholic Church actually trusts to perform exorcisms. And a lot of what he described in that book, which is just really unsettling at times, I'll, I'll say it that way, it, it's... I, it, <laughs> I like to settle in with a good book before I go to bed. Not That's that not one. not the book to not do that Not that one. It was very difficult to sleep after I'd read a chapter Grimm's or two Fairy of that. Grimm's Fairy Tales version 3.0. But a lot of the stuff he documents, I mean, that that same stuff comes out here. And, and you know, and, and those people that participate even in the ritual, they are at a real risk of these things following him home. He documented that it had destroyed his family. And I, I think he ended up losing his wife. I think they separated because... He was bringing things home. She would see things in the house when he wasn't there, shapes of people. Yeah. Uh, I think things were tormenting his child at one point in time. He had to do a cleansing of his house and all that. So that, that's, that's taking service to a whole new level. Yeah. And then here, you know, I don't know. I, I think you and I have talked about it in the last few years, though, or last five to ten years even, that there has been a call for exorcists in the Catholic Church and, and for, you know, people going into the church to learn those rites. Because the performance of exorcisms is at an all-time high. I think every year they perform more than they did the year before. Yeah. Not a good I sign. Mean, we're, yeah, I mean, humanity's going down a path, and, and it's you, you want to hope for the best. But, you know, when the Catholic Church is needing exorcists and putting out the call and in, in performing, because like you said, you have to get permission. I think you have to have, like, two independent witnesses, and you have to be evaluated by a psychiatrist beforehand. Yeah. You have to it's be not able, just a couple of yeah, priests getting together no. and saying, hey, let's go do an exorcist tonight. Yeah, no, no the no, process no, 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 is no. not as simple as someone showing up and going, this guy needs to be exercised. No, you have to be evaluated by a medical professional, a mental professional, and like a priest. Before, And, and those professionals all have to agree that what's going on is more than, than what it seems. One of the Catholic priests I saw interviewed, uh, actually I was watching last night, he said out of a thousand cases that are brought to him or you know his his group one of a thousand yeah truly is the definition of what they would permit an ex- uh, exorcist yeah, to I, occur. I would think in most cases like you said mental uh physical uh you know imbalances a lot of that probably falls under that and, and if you don't know you're not a professional you you may not know the difference and that's why you have to be evaluated but like you said if it's one in a thousand i mean that's but yet they're still needing help for exorcisms yeah or exorcists, I should say. So, yeah. No, exorcism is on the rise. And, and like you said, and like I said, they have to be evaluated. So, I mean, obviously, they're they're doing their due diligence. So. Well, and again, back to the way the story was told and, and the knowledge that was gained. It's really no different than like all the mini doctor shows that are on television. If those were written by people who didn't have an understanding of surgical terms and medicine and stuff, you know, can you imagine the doctors going in? Yeah, we're going to snip <laughs> this here vein and take this artery out and do. I mean, well, when you use those, the southern accent, it just makes it worse. <laughs> but again, if you have that background that even people in the field can identify with, it becomes a whole new, well, more believable level. And again, even observing these phenomena, there's a video allegedly on YouTube. I've never watched it. I refuse to watch it because of the context that supposedly portrays a true exorcism. Now it's leaked video. It should have never got out to the public. Those kinds of records are supposed to be sealed. Yep. You said, they, you know, they keep their records. They, they, Very they confidential. don't want that in the public eye. The, the 
the urban legend is that if you watch this video, you will experience things in your home. So you, simply by observing an exorcism, is supposed to bring danger to you. And you had, what they say, as many as 48 witnesses total to yeah. this. You had the whole kid's family. You had all the priests. You had the medical professionals. So, And how do I put this, regardless if you believe it or not, if you were one of those 48 families, yeah. if you witnessed that, regardless of what it was, whether it was a full-blown demonic possession to a spoiled little rich kid or, or whatever, that is going to be traumatic to you regardless yeah. of what the origin was just going through that. So that could spark a lot of more evil misunderstanding and, and you know, it's it's a slippery slope. So again, whether, like you said, whether he's a spoiled little rich kid who wanted to find a way to swear to priest <laughs> or legit victim of demonic possession, yeah. uh, you know, did he, you know, the story says that they, they were successful. That that is the end result. They were successful. They saved this boy's soul. He went on to lead a, from the sound of a very interesting life, successful life. So, and I loved the twist that I hadn't heard that you brought with the uh, last rites by yeah. the Catholic priest. That's yeah, the guy just shows up out of the blue one day. And like like we said, maybe they just kept tabs on him. Maybe maybe that's part of the process. Yeah. Well, regardless of exactly what occurred, it was interesting for us to take a, a deeper dive into this, uh, especially being associated with St. Louis to, to some degree. And we hope that you have enjoyed yet another tale of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for listening. It was the hurt first horror. Bodern was granted permission from the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon. And also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.